Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with creativity expert, Dr. James Kaufman. James received his PhD from Yale University in cognitive psychology, where he worked with famed intelligence researcher Robert Sternberg. He is currently a professor of educational psychology at the University of Connecticut and is the author or editor of more than 35 books, including Creativity 101. He's also published over 200 papers, chapters, and reviews. It was a thrill to talk to James about his work in creativity. He's such a fountain of knowledge on the topic, and it was great to pick his brain for a bit. I really enjoyed discussing the uh, variety of domains in which creativity can live. I think it's easy to forget that creativity isn't just reserved for quote-unquote creative types, like uh, individuals that choose to work in artistic fields. But rather, uh, creativity can be found in mathematics, sciences, trades, etc. I'm also glad we had a chance to discuss a variety of ways to increase or influence creativity, whether it be in a group setting at work or just trying to help yourself think more creatively. So I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I'm here with James Kaufman. James, thank you for taking time out of your day to join me today. It is my pleasure. Uh, So you've spent uh, a big chunk of your life uh, devoted to research on the topic of creativity. Uh, Why don't we start with uh, your definition of creativity? It sounds like a a type of term in psychology that would have a different definition depending on who you ask. So what is your definition in, in the context of your research? What's interesting is that people often kind of assume that creativity would be a construct that has 10,000 definitions. There's actually pretty decent agreement, which granted it's kind of a vague definition, but usually creativity is defined as something that has two main components. One is that it should be something new, different, original, and, and this is the one that all of us kind of understand that creativity isn't just memory or repeating something. But the other one is that it also in some way needs to be task appropriate or relevant or useful. So it can't be chaos, it can't be random. If you're asked to build a bridge, you can build the most unusual bridge in the world, but if it collapses, it's not considered a creative bridge because it's not a bridge in a sense. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because you, you reminded me of something that I'm curious about. This, you've made this distinction between uh, you know, creativity having to be targeted and on, on topic. Um, oftentimes in, in my courses, um, you see creative, I'm putting in quotes here, creative uh, uh, solutions to problems that are, that basically compromise the instructions of, of something. So um, what are your thoughts on, on uh, you know, how do we encourage creativity 
while also following instructions, let's say in a, in a student population or something like that? That's a good question. I mean, usually students learn, so to speak, not to be creative. They tend to be punished for anything that doesn't broadly conform. Usually they learn that if they break a key rule, they'll get either no or almost no credit for it. So by the time that I see my students and I try to say, yes, be creative, they're always waiting for the catch. So often it's not even a matter that we need to make sure that students' unbridled creativity fits the assignment because usually that's just not an issue. My general feeling is that it's not so much that something isn't creative if it doesn't do something in a particular way because when I say task appropriate, it's actually a really wide berth. So if you're talking about something like art, the confines of task appropriate may be 98% of anything you can possibly right. think. Right, literally anything can be art, right. I mean, so task appropriate really comes into play very much depending on the domain. So like if you are a math teacher, then there may be a correct solution but there also may be 7,000 ways of getting there. So the thing to be careful of in terms of stifling creativity is that if a child can get at the quote, correct, unquote answer, even if it's not the way you're teaching it, A, that counts and B, that's creative. It's only if the child or adult for that matter is being original or different, but completely ignoring any of the real world goals or constraints it's yeah it's 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 surprising how uh as i sort of prepared to for this discussion you know i started just thinking about the the variety of domains in which creativity can live and and it, you know it spans from you know abstract art where you're creating something that only you know what it was. Maybe it, maybe it didn't have a lot of thought going into it, but it's something that just came out of you versus analytical creativity in, in sort of um, in my past role doing analytics. It's like, I need a creative way to analyze this data, these data. Um, and so it, it really kind of, as I did some research, start to realize that, that creativity can live in, in so many spaces. Um, so what are the obviously there's a lot of distinct mental processes that kind of go into contribute to being a creative person or creative thought. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of these mental processes that, that contribute to creativity? Absolutely. <laughs> One of the most underrated ones is what is sometimes called problem finding. Usually in school or frankly in life, we're presented with a problem. You know, Sally has eight apples. She needs to divide them nine ways. Or, you know, Maria's in a train going 80 miles an hour. We're presented these type of problems, you know, or, or in the great Gatsby, what is the role of the spectacles? 
in real life, that doesn't happen. In real life, we see symptoms, but we're not handed the metaphoric disease. So we might realize, oh, I'm losing money every month. But that's not really a problem. That, that's something you need to address. But that might be because somebody's hacked into your bank account and they're stealing money. It might be because you're spending way too much money on a particular thing. Maybe you're not making as much. And so the key is to figure out what's the actual problem to solve. Because if you're losing money and you think, okay, well, the problem is I have to make more money and you put in overtime, but it turns out the real problem is somebody had your, hacked your credit card number. They'll just keep spending more and more money as you make more. And so all that effort in terms of solving the problem and then implementing it, it's not going to matter because you're solving the wrong problem. That, that's, it's funny that you say that because I know in, in analytics, you know, one of the first things that I, I've, I've done some workshops on analytics and, you know, the theme was always identify the problem. It was literally the first thing was identify the problem because um, if, if you don't have a ton of experience in sort of answering problems using data, you, the habit is to jump into an analysis or to try to just randomly jump at salute, grab, grab onto solutions. Like, let's sit down. Are we answering the right question? Right. Um, mm -hmm. That's interesting that that contributes to creativity. Um, now, it, 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 I get the feeling like you're touching on sort of like a critical thinking component as well when you say problem finding. Um, is, that, is that accurate? Yes. Um, I've had to think for a second. Certainly, when we talk about the creative process, it tends to be a more cognitive perspective. So it tends to, as you were saying, be more thinking related. So like you have problem finding, but then you also have what, you know, idea generation, which sometimes called divergent thinking, very closely related to brainstorming. And that's when, okay, let's think of all the possible ways we might solve problems. And that's very related to creativity. But again, there is this element of critical thinking, even though I can brainstorming, there's supposed to be, there's no wrong solution. I mean, if I'm asking you, you know, how might we figure out how to put on a new production of this show and somebody yells out, let's go to the moon. I mean, okay, I mean, it's not like wrong, but it's, it's not a terrific response. And so it's not like you want to necessarily constrain things, but again, it comes down to this pure chaos versus good boundary breaking, because obviously you also don't want everybody to yell out the same thing. Then another really important stage, which like problem finding often isn't thought about as often, is the evaluation or convergent aspect. Because when you have a list of 20 possible ideas, you gotta get it down to one eventually. And that, that's just as important. Because if you come up with 20 ideas and you know maybe five of them are amazing and then five are pretty good and then five are okay and five are just terrible if you always are picking the five terrible ideas the five wonderful ideas won't matter as much mm -hmm. yeah. these are all things that require they involve also critical thinking for this particular aspect of it now you've pointed to long-term memory 
in the past is having uh, a relationship to creativity. Could you talk about that a little bit? When I've talked about it, it's in, so one major theory of intelligence is called the CHC theory, Cattell, Horn, Carroll. And John Horn was actually my undergraduate mentor. He was one of, if not the smartest human beings I've ever known in my entire life, absolute genius. And it started with the, this idea there's crystallized and fluid intelligence where crystallized is acquired knowledge. So you know that this is how you make toast. This is the first president of the United States or whatever. And then fluid is being able to handle new stimuli, doing something for the first time, figuring out, okay, I got this new iPhone and it's brand new and I need to figure out how do I use the camera? How do I make a call? How do I take advantage of these 40 new features? You would think that fluid would be where creativity would be and for a while it was, and to be honest, that's a lot closer to where I think creativity is. In the expanded model, they added a whole bunch of different components. And one of them was long-term storage and retrieval. The argument is that creativity is housed there because if we're trying to solve a problem, we have to kind of go into the file cabinet that is our mind and pull out the right response to match the situation. I think it's certainly involved I don't think it's the primary aspect. I think it's for a for something like brainstorming, I think it's important. But brainstorming is only a small part of creativity. And I think that long-term storage and retrieval, as, as it's called, or just long-term memory, in cognitive psychology gets a little bit too much credit with, with creativity. It, it, it's interesting because it, it reminds me of... Um... Uh, so let's just pick uh, something that I know something about, which is improv comedy. So when you when you take improv lessons, one of the uh, you know where you're just basically creating a scene from nothing. Um, one of the tips is to uh, perform to the top of your intelligence, and to translate that, essentially, it's you know draw on what you know when you're creating a scene. So. If you're um, if you're if you have the structure of a scene which is uh, father and son, or uh, let's say it's boss and employee, for example, um, if you are if you're a medical doctor, go ahead and lean into that and apply those those details to the tapestry of your scene to the to the uh, the create the creative elements that you're putting into the scene. You can make up everything else, right? You can make up how you're interacting with the person, but it's, but you should draw on something that you know because that'll make the scene more realistic, more creative. It'll, it'll pop. Uh, does that is, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, domain knowledge is usually huge in creativity, and just as a professor lecturer, you know there are some things that I know a lot about. I mean, not just academically. I mean, I love baseball. I love theater. I tend to bring these in a lot more than usual as examples, or sometimes if I'm trying to illustrate the new versus appropriate, I'll just try to spin a completely nonsensical word vomit stream. And certainly the things that I'm interested in, I tend to grab more quickly. 
So if I'm just making up a random sentence, I'm gonna, I'm interested in the Declaration of, of Independence. I usually pull in John Adams or something. It's, um, it, it's using your strengths. So is there a difference between creativity as it occurs in someone's mind and how is it how it's expressed versus sort of an optimal creative process that you would, uh, in, in other words, um, does the does the research on creativity have anything to say about, you know, you have a room with, you know, for, and you're trying to solve a problem in let's say a business context. Um, is, is there evidence on, on what to do to maximize the creativity of the people in that room? I'm thinking sort of in terms of a process, like, um, like, cause we talked about brainstorming, right? Um, I'm just curious if there's any, any research looking into, you know, if this, if you implement this sort of process to, to keep the ideas flowing, you know, it's much better than if you do this other process or something like that. Um, some of it, there's so much different disparate stuff about it. I was like, okay, this, this is yeah. certainly one, and this, I promise this will eventually answer the question. There is a cup. one way people think about creativity is what's called the four Ps, where there's the person, and that's the person being creative. There's the process, which is what we were talking about. There's the product, and then there's the press, which is a not very clear word that really means environment. And a lot depends on what you're focusing on. So for example, the process, usually when people talk about that, it is this kind of brainstorming and then narrowing down the ideas. And there are some optimal tips for brainstorming. One, one big one is to have people actually write down their ideas first before sharing. Because if you end up doing the kind of process in which we would imagine it, where everybody's shouting out their ideas. In, in real life, some people are shy and introverted. Those people are just as creative. And so if you, I mean, I've seen this myself, when they'll, they'll bring together small little think tanks and it'll usually be a different bunch of different domains. And often there'll be one person who's aggressive and kind of domineering. And like if I'm in a group of seven people and two people are kind of take charge, I'll just check out because I'm, I don't feel like jockeying or fighting for my ideas, particularly if I'm doing it for somebody else. And if you have a workplace context, you lose a lot of ideas. Similarly, you don't want the boss there. You don't want the supervisor because even if they're not saying anything, just nonverbal behavior, people look to them and then if somebody says something way out there and the boss is even very subtly shaking her head or just giving that nonverbal language of I don't like this idea, the person yelling out that idea is going to be really quiet. So there is some stuff with the process like that for optimizing. There's also, there's also a lot of person-related stuff where you want a certain, you know, you want diversity in a very wide range of what that means. So obviously diversity, as we're normally talking about it, diverse groups tend to be more creative. You know, groups of people from different ethnicities, cultures, gender, etc. Also in business, people from different parts of the company, people with different educational backgrounds, people with different like majors or concentrations or specialties, as long as there's communication and as long as inter 
personal conflict isn't super huge, um, that is maximized. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that, uh, that yeah, part of the, the key to this creative process is to, is to really, really have this kind of open environment where ideas aren't shot down. That's, that's always one of the things I've liked about, about some of the guidelines around brainstorming is that like the phase one is that there's no, there is no bad idea. And then the next phase, you're kind of trying to piece things together. What do we have on our whiteboard after, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, I've done brainstorming activities in the task in the past where it's, it's, you write everything down and there are no bad ideas. Like this is the no bad idea phase. And, and it's interesting that you, that you mentioned that, that the extraction process is also very important. Who's leading the, who's leading this creative process? Because I guess in the past, you know, the, 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 the one of the big barriers to creativity is not everyone speaking up. Now you mentioned, you know, an introvert, someone specifically an introvert might be just as creative as the extrovert, but they're going to be less likely to share in that context. Um, could you talk a little bit more about personality? So uh, in a past episode, I've, uh, we've discussed personality quite a bit, um, including the big five. Uh, talk a little, could you talk a little bit about the relationship between creativity and personality traits? Absolutely. The personality trait most associated with creativity by far is openness. And this really isn't very surprising because if you look at, well, how do they measure openness? Some of the questions are, I think I'm creative. So to a degree, it's okay. <laughs> but if you look a little deeper, often openness is split where you openness to experience or openness to intellect. And <clears throat> openness to experience, that might be, I want to try new foods or I want to do things that are I've never done before, whether it's bungee jumping or, or whatever. Openness to intellect is I like debating. I, I'm willing to try to change my mind. I want to be challenged. Often, openness to intellect is really related to creativity and science. Openness to experience is often related to creativity and the arts. Of the other four, conscientiousness is interesting because that also is very domain dependent where high conscientiousness, people who are organized and ordered and responsible, that tends to be positively associated with creativity and science, but sometimes a little negatively creativity correlated with creativity in the arts. Introversion, extroversion, there's usually a slight nudge for extroversion, but to be honest, having read a lot of studies on it, there's a lot of scatter. Yeah, it strikes me that, um, especially with, as I mentioned earlier, with creativity being applied in so many domains, it, like my guess would be that the solution to the relationship between sort of extroversion and introversion is it's probably dependent on what that specific creativity domain is, right? So maybe an, maybe an introvert is more creative when it comes to those analytical types of problem solving where an extrovert might have more interpersonal, uh, more, more um, creativity when it comes to solving interpersonal problems. Like, you know, I, I'm thinking like an HR representative where it's like, we have this comp, we have this conflict and, oh, I have an idea to solve this 
this conflict. Maybe we can have a little talk and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and like linking back to what we were just talking about, like stuff like brainstorming, an introvert, you know, yes, you can get their ideas by having them write it down, but it also might work better either just them or, or them and one colleague. Like brainstorming is one technique. It's not the only technique. Like it, it's easy for people to assume brainstorming equals good or optimal sometimes, but it's also not for everybody. Um, if you have people who are either shy or, I mean, there's other things. It's not just, I mean, I don't consider myself a shy person at all. So there's also a certain bit of motivation woven in or just comfort, but I work best in groups of two or three, maybe four. So the idea of this room full of people all either yelling out ideas or even run by a very good facilitator, yes, that's a perfectly good technique. It doesn't mean it's always the best technique. Right. It's, and certainly not the only. And some of that is be responsive to what people say they want to do. Like if somebody says, I really don't like brainstorming, or if you're realizing, oh, when this person then goes off and, and works and comes back, that's the most creative stuff. Choice is so important. Um, we often always don't think about that. But on one hand, yes, you want to challenge people. But if you're putting them in situations where they're not comfortable or when they feel there's only this one way, that's actually, that's not going to get the most creativity out of people. You mentioned earlier that um, the you know the importance of of diversity, whether it's ethnicity, gender, background, age, et cetera, et cetera, can create a, an environment with lots of different ideas. In your view, do, do you think that it's uh, diversity just for diversity's sake is what is uh, creating this variety of ideas? The reason why I ask is because like I, I don't necessarily think diversity for diversity's sake is helpful. Rather that when you create, when you have the diverse population, you're getting different ideas. And in, in, in other words, if you took a dimension like age and you had five different age groups, if they're all making the same error or they're, they're all not, or they're all bringing the same thing to the table, then age is not really a dimension that would generate any, any more creativity than if you just had five people of the same age. So um, I'm curious as to, as to how you feel diversity can create these, uh, a better environment for idea creation. I think a lot of it is an interaction with traits. So if we think about what are the traits of a creative person, I mean, we've already talked about openness. There's also this idea of cognitive flexibility. So not being rigid. Not, there's a concept called functional fixedness where you are just stuck on something being used in one way. So the, there's a classic insight problem where you're asked to create a candle holder and you're given candle box of thumbtacks and um, a match and you have to figure it out. And the answer is you dump the thumbtacks out of the box and you use the box and then use the thumbtack. But if you can't see that box as an additional tool, you never need to get it right. There's also what's called perspective taking, being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try to see the world from their perspective. All of these things are associated with creativity. They're also associated with tolerance, acceptance, less prejudice. 
if you get a group of people, people who are more likely to be creative are more likely to have these traits, which means when you then have diversity, you have these different ideas, different backgrounds, different perspectives, different life experiences. If the other people in the group are open, flexible, and listen, that's when you have this maximum possibility. Because similarly, yes, if you have different age groups and they all say the same thing, but also if you have different age groups and they're all saying different things, but they're also all thinking everybody else here is an idiot, you're not going to get more creativity. You have to have that willingness, that, that wanting to understand, to, to see the world from this other person's perspective and not just, like if you, if you read about the stuff which you're trying to just diversify hiring, it isn't just about, okay, we're bringing in different people and make them see things from our way. It's also, we want to see things from their perspective and to learn because there's all these ideas out there and it's equally about you moving towards the middle, not just bringing people towards you. Uh, so speaking of, of personal experiences and traits that are associated with creativity, um, you've also done some work looking at the relationship between creativity and uh, mental illness or, or, or trauma. Um, and it reminded me of um, the, uh, there was a film called Misery Loves Comedy uh, that looks at, uh, that tries to answer the question, do you have to be miserable to be funny? And that was the first thought I had when I was re reading up on, on this, this link between creativity and mental illness. Now, you know, the answer is, Yes and no. I think it seemed as though a lot, a lot of comedians have a past of, of, of uh, past history of not the greatest family life. But I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the link between creativity and mental illness. It's a wonderfully complex subject where you have a lot of people with very strong views. And I've evolved quite a bit on this. One of the very first studies I did, I was still in graduate school. I was interested in writers. And so I, I got this big, like brick-like tome of biographical history, you know, database of writers. And I began entering as much as I could find about, okay, you know, everything from gender to when they lived to their best work and all this stuff, and as well as coding for life events. And I found this little hiccup, for lack of a better word, where female poets were more likely to show signs of mental illness as recorded in their biography, so suicide attempt or hospitalization, than any other type of writer. I did another study looking at eminent women. And again, you had fiction writers, you had actresses, people in business and politics and art, and it was the poets who were super high. And it was, somebody suggested called this a Sylvia Plath effect. And it was the type of thing, it was a small study, but my university at the time had hired a PR firm that's publicized the research of our people. And I did all this other stuff that I cared a great deal about. And they saw Sylvia Plathopec, what's this? <laughs> sure. And so I chatted with them. And, and then a couple of weeks later, I got an email from a journalist. And I remember that day in my office, um, clicking on CNN, oh, what happened? And then I see Sylvia Plathopec, oh God. And I click in this article on it. And New York Times, LA Times, weird press attention. And I was younger, I was more flip, I was stupider. I mean, I'm still flipping stupid, but not quite as much. 
And in the aftermath of it, and this was still relatively early in like the days of blogging and stuff, but people still blogged. I realized it was the first time I realized, oh, there's actually a relationship to the work I do and the things that I say and what other people may think about them. And a combination of people who were writers who either took comfort from it, which was nice, but also who either were offended or upset or worried or concerned. And it was like, oh, and the more I studied, the more I looked into it, there's a really big difference, as you know, between, you know, correlation and causation or, you know, things can be linked. It doesn't mean in any way one is responsible for the other one. Often in creativity, when you hear, you know, exercises associated with creativity or a messy desk means you're a genius. No, it doesn't. I mean, they may be related. Much of the work on mental illness and creativity, either you have studies like I did or worse, where you're looking at biographies, which are already going to be riddled with their own biases or inaccuracies or just fair for its day, so to speak. Or you have studies where they would test college students and give them measures of creativity and then measures of what work like subclinical mental illness. So instead of bipolar, hypomania, or things like anxiety. Yeah, they'll sometimes be small relationships, but the flip side is that if somebody has mental health issues that are genuinely disrupting their life, you know, that are that also means they're not getting stuff done. They're not doing the actual like writing or, or drawing part of creativity. I mean, I don't fully come, there's another side that says there's absolutely no relationship whatsoever. There are enough studies that show some connection. I'm not comfortable saying it's zero, but I think it is so overinflated and particularly <clears throat> at the practical level, at the, well, what does this mean for you, person who is creative and starting out, it means almost nothing. Yeah, I, I was, the reason, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you that was because uh, I was watching some, an interview with Jordan Peterson, a psychologist who, uh, he said something that resonated with me, which is, you don't need to be creative unless you have a problem to solve. And I thought about I, I thought that was an interesting encapsulation of, of developing creative thinking. And I my mind immediately went to sort of this mental illness model where it's like if you're if you grow up in an environment where everything is peachy keen and, and there's there's everything's kind of laid out for you, you you could argue that there's no reason to be creative. Whereas if you grew up in sort of a chaotic environment and you're constantly problem solving, perhaps, again, just kind of wildly speculating here that your, 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 your brain is working harder to solve problems, to make people happy, to try to get yourself on the right track. And maybe, maybe that's kind of going into th this relationship between not necessarily mental illness and creativity, but um, how clear of a, an easy of a path you had when you were younger versus whether versus a more difficult path thoughts one is that i mean boredom can be a problem so absolutely yes if you have something that needs fixing creativity helps fix it 
But there's also, if you are bored, or if you want something to distract, amuse, entertain you, then, because there's being creative to lift yourself up to equilibrium, but there's then being creative to try to lift yourself up to a sense, to a place of joy or happiness or excitement. The other is that <clears throat> I absolutely agree that for a lot of people, it takes creativity to survive, to maintain. But that tends to be among the least recognized creativity. There's something that my colleague Vlad Glavino and I have been talked about and thinking of what we call like shadow creativity, like the creativity is hidden. Whether it's because a person doesn't realize they're being creative. And I mean, some of that is when somebody's, you know, if you are somebody who's just struggling with money, you may be super creative to figure out how do I balance my budget? How do I make sure I can provide for my family? But most people don't look at that and think, wow, that person's creative because you're not doing something, something that is traditionally creative. And because the way society works, you may not be given that chance. It, it's, there are a lot of great stories like about J.K. Rowling and how she was struggling just to make ends meet and provide. And then, hey, she wrote Harry Potter <clears throat> before becoming problemat problematic. But... <clears throat> well, I thought one of the thoughts I had as well was that um, you know, you mentioned J.K. Rowling. The it it feels to me like if you if you grow up like for example in the U.S., our, our culture is very education focused. So you you start down a path uh, in childhood, and it's stay in school, do well in school, and that leads leads to a great future. It it feels to me as though uh, when when you find difficulty in that path, or that path doesn't work out the way you, you want it to these alternatives pop up. And those alternatives tend to be careers or futures that involve the, something more on the artistic side. I want to, I, I don't like school. I want to, I want to play drums in a band and I want to do that for a living. Um, or I, I like making movies and I like watching movies. So I want to, I want to uh, create movies and that these alternative branches are they're, they're, they're fundamentally different from sort of straight education, straight math, science, right? Um, and so I don't know if, that's, if that model is how people end up being creative types or in creative fields. Here's where I push back. Artistic careers and creative careers are not a synonym to me. So... A, I think there are an awful lot of people who might be in the arts, but not be particularly creative. That's, a, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, that's an interest. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? That's, that sounds interesting. I mean, the first time I ever really thought about it was a while ago when I was teaching and I would often use music as an example. And I happened to have a bunch of students in my class who were in the marching band. And they were like, well, usually we're being told what to do, we're reading music, we're doing the exact same dump, 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 dump things. And I don't think we're being creative. And I thought about it. And yeah, I'm not sure I can argue you are being particularly creative. I also feel like you can be creative, in my opinion, almost anything. I mean, a good accountant or tax lawyer is going to be incredibly creative in figuring out what are legal ways to save their clients money. What are you know, ways you can avoid this tax law and this loophole or somebody 
who's working as a clerk and then figures out, oh, I can save 10 minutes every day if I do this and this and this. <clears throat> These are jobs that you may not think, oh, wow, that's a creative career. I think it's super individual. I think in any, any career, you're going to have the people who are creative, the people who are less creative. Are there going to be some careers that creative people will be less drawn to? Of course. There's also the degree to which, when we're talking ed education, I mean, actors can spend years training, whether it's a mentor or in getting a degree. I mean, any artistic position, there's training, there's education, there's classes, there's things to learn about this technique and this way of making sure your voice doesn't blow out. Um, if you look at all the performers who at a certain point for many, just your body gives out or you lose your voice and so many then pivot to something interesting, related or unrelated, or, I mean, there is, I mean, there's one actress singer, you know, Broadway level who was having tr trouble getting a lozenge that she likes that would help ease her throat. And after a while she couldn't find it. She ended up working with somebody to develop it. And you know, she's still acting singing, but she's equally selling this um, lozenge that is particularly outstanding and is using her background. And yes, we think of entrepreneurs creative. It's to me very hard to kind of cut down and say, okay, based on this career or based on this major, this is creative and this isn't. Yeah, that makes that that definitely makes sense. I think yeah, I think you know part of it has to do with the uh, the overuse of the term creative type. I'm not a big fan of that term, um, but you do hear it a lot in terms of oh, he's a he or she's a creative type. So you know, sticks to the music and and arts and things like that. One one last question bef before we we wrap up, and that is, let's go ultra practical, right? You maybe you have kids uh, that are um, starting school or they're they're starting you know to adolescence. Um, there can be in our especially perhaps or maybe not especially perhaps, but in our culture, there are lots of ways in which we we tend to stamp out creativity, right? If you've ever been told to, for example, like to stop daydreaming, right? That's you know, you hear that, you've heard that, everybody's heard that as a kid at some point. Um, what are some practical ways that you can instill creativity in your, in your children if you're, uh, if you're a parent? It's a great question, and there's a number of different ones. One, there's an idea of creative metacognition that me and Ron Baghetto have kind of developed, and there, there's two components. One is knowing your strengths and weaknesses to optimize it. And that's particularly important a little older. Like if you have a seven-year-old kid, probably not the most important. But as you advance, knowing to get feedback, knowing, okay, I'm good at this, not good at this. And then I can decide, do I want to try to improve my weak part or capitalize on strengths? There's no right answer. The other dimension, though, is particularly important, which is to know when to be creative. Where we, we tend to think about how do we nurture, inspire creativity? As if we have a whole generation of, of uh, Bruce Wayne's, a lot of a lot of Batman, we're trying to give them the tools. Where you have people who are naturally not going to be creative, and you got to 
boosts them up and here is this bat cave and here's the, the Batmobile and all these tools and absolutely, absolutely for a lot of kids that's the exact right thing but you also have some people who are Superman, Superwoman and they're always on. They have this creative superpower but it's not always great to be creative where if it's okay, now here's your standardized test or the teacher's trying to teach this particular concept or you have a teacher who, I mean, I think teachers get a really bad rap, but if you get a teacher who's not a big creativity fan, knowing, okay, I'm gonna be creative for this person who will appreciate it. And now this person who's gonna shoot me down, I'm just gonna give them what they want. Because if I don't, I'm gonna get not only a bad grade, but it won't be appreciated. And particularly if it's your kid, you don't wanna see that, that spark get snuffed out. I mean, teaching Superman to be Clark Kent because if you look, people, there's enough evidence out there <clears throat> that all people, not just teachers, average person in the workplace, people say they want creativity. They want creative people, students, workers. But an awful lot of people want it in this very specific way. Or they really don't want it. But <clears throat> creativity is one of those things you don't tend to say, yes, I hate creativity. It's a fine line. Now, what, what about for an adult? So suppose, uh, suppose I just wanted to take a month to, uh, you know, I, I want to work, I want to work the muscle of creativity. What would that, what, what, what would you advise? What would that look like? This is where the best advice is probably the most boring advice, because most of the shortcuts out there don't really work. One big thing is that creativity tends to be what's called domain specific. Not always, but it means if you want to be a creative writer, then write and write more and then read and then write some more. If you want to be a creative inventor, invent. And then when you fail, keep inventing and practice and invent more. A lot of these corporate retreats where you have a whole company that makes these widgets and then they take a weekend and they sing or they they paint in hoping of releasing the creative spirit. Nah, it doesn't really work. Um, it, I mean, it, it probably won't hurt. It's not like I'll make them less creative and maybe it'll help a little bit, but it's not a good expenditure of resources. That's, that's a, it's interesting to hear. That's, I guess that's a little, con, it's consistent with what you've seen with these sort of phone apps, the, for a while, there was a, these trendy, you know, these luminosity uh, little games you play. And the, the, the pitch was that it increases intelligence, but apparently the data suggests that it was just made you better at that game. And what it sounds like you're saying is uh, it, creativity is not all that different from that, that finding that if you're, if you, so if you're a musician, I know I've talked to one of my students before who they said, I, I, you know, I have this creative block. I want to make songs and lyrics. And, you know, I basically told him in a very broad sense, go do things, go do things go do anything and, and go meet people because you need data to dump in your brain that will eventually settle and, and help you write lyrics or, you know, find something that you're passionate about, find a, an interaction, find an emotion that you're, that you're passionate about. And with, with blocks, 
like there's short-term and long-term advice. If you're blocked and you need something by Friday, step away and do something else in that broad domain. So if you are trying to finish your novel or whatever, go and write on something else. If it's more long-term, just you feel blocked, that's when absolutely doing other stuff, um, particularly doing something where your body's engaged, but your brain can kind of do a little bit of mind wandering. I mean, there's, there's a reason why so many people get ideas in the shower as they're falling asleep or when they're driving, because some of their brain has to focus, like don't crash and drive off the cliff. But after you've been driving for a couple of months or at least a year or two, you don't have to use full brain. And that's when, okay. And, and you can think about this stuff and the ideas start percolating. Um, certainly it's when I, I mean, another curse of the pandemic, but driving to work that same route is when, uh, what about this? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a lot harder to come up with, uh, with novel ideas when you're, when you're sitting on the couch <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. Um, well, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, James, thank you so much for, for joining me. Uh, tons and tons of valuable information on creativity. I cannot thank you enough. It's my pleasure. It's still a lot of fun. For more on James, you can follow him on Twitter at James Kaufman, or you you can head over to Amazon and pick up one of his extensive book titles, such as Creativity 101 or Creativity and Introduction, which is an undergraduate textbook that he edited with Robert Sternberg. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs> <laughs>